The Catechism reason, reading is the sixth and seventh petitions of the Lord's Prayer. The sixth petition, and lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? God indeed tempts no one to sin, but we pray in this petition that God would so guard and preserve us that the devil, the world, and our own flesh may not deceive us nor lead us into error and unbelief, despair, and other great and shameful sins, but that when so tempted, we may finally prevail and gain the victory. And the seventh petition, but deliver us from evil. What does this mean? We pray in this petition, in summary, that our Heavenly Father would deliver us from all manner of evil, whether it affect body or soul, property or reputation, and at last, when the hour of death shall come, grant us a blessed end, and graciously take us from this world of sorrow to himself in heaven. And the gospel lesson uh, is going to skip around for a few parts through the gospel of Mark, uh, because we're following the story of Peter. Uh, First, uh, his insistence that he will not deny Jesus, uh, and then second part will be his denial of Jesus, and then the third part, his restoration. Uh, And so the reading uh, through Mark uh, chapters 14 through 16, following the story of Peter, beginning in chapter 14 at verse 26, and we read in Jesus' name. Now this is the evening before uh, Jesus' crucifixion, uh, just before he is arrested. Beginning at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then the next part is verses 66 through 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. And for the third part, we skip past Jesus' uh, trial and his crucifixion. And in fact, we skip ahead a few days uh, to his resurrection. And we hear part of the angel's proclamation Uh, to the women and the message that they pass along to Jesus' disciples. Uh, So Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 6, uh, and this is the angel speaking to the women. 
And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the worst thing that can happen? Now, I promise we won't dwell on this too much because it's not very pleasant to think about. But there are some unpleasant things that we do need to consider from time to time because it might help us to avoid them or it might help us prepare for the worst if the worst ever happens. So what's the worst thing that can happen? And maybe I should give you a little bit of context. Perhaps you've heard this question before. Uh, when a friend, or maybe a so-called friend, uh, is trying to tempt you to do something, like race your bike down a steep hill. Or maybe you heard it from a true friend who was just trying to settle you down when the boss calls you into his office. I think it's kind of fun in these situations to actually come up with the worst thing that can happen, because mostly because that annoys the other person, and for some reason I think that's actually kind of fun. Uh, and so... Maybe it could be I could hit a pothole down, uh, down on the hill, and I could flip over the handlebar, handlebars and crack my head on the pavement and die. Or it could be the boss could fire me, and then I can't find a new job, and I become homeless and hungry until I freeze to death on a park bench. In most scenarios, the worst thing that can happen is actually pretty bad. With a little imagination, you can usually come up with some scenario that results in you dying. But death isn't really the worst thing that can happen. And here I'm talking about things that can happen specifically to you. Um, you might have people in your life that you love more than yourself, and having them die is far worse than facing death yourself. But that's not even what I'm talking about. Just focus on the things that can happen to you. Death is not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing is that you can fall into unbelief. And the worst thing you can do to someone you love is to cause them to fall into unbelief. Now, death is bad. We talked about that recently. But what happens if some danger you face causes you to die? Your body and your soul are separated, and that's bad. Your soul waits in the presence of God until the resurrection of the dead, and that's good that you wait in the presence of God. And then at the resurrection of the dead, it is reunited with your body, and you are transformed into the perfect image of God to live and reign with Jesus Christ for all eternity. In the end, for Christians, death doesn't turn out, to be that bad for eternity. But what if you fall into unbelief? Well, when you die, whenever that may be, your soul does not enter into the presence of God, and at the resurrection of the dead you are not transformed into the perfect image of Jesus Christ, and you do not live and reign with Jesus Christ in perfect bliss for all eternity. 
Instead, you suffer eternal torment in hell. And this is why Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And here, Jesus is not talking about the devil, but God. The devil does not have authority to destroy either body or soul. And he especially does not have authority to kill the soul. And this is why he tempts us. Think of the Garden of Eden and the fall into sin. The devil had no authority to destroy even one fly or one blade of grass in God's creation. And you know, he still doesn't have that authority. The devil's only weapon is temptation, and it's a strong weapon. He could not destroy Adam and Eve. He could not introduce death into the world on his own. He could only tempt Adam and Eve to do so. And that, of course, is what he did. Temptation is his only weapon, but it's a strong weapon. And so it doesn't mean that we should be unconcerned about the devil since all he can do is tempt us. Rather, it means we should be especially concerned about his temptations because that is where all of his great power lies. He cannot destroy you, but he can tempt you to fall into unbelief and come under the condemnation of God. In Luther's explanation to the sixth petition, he identifies three sources of temptation. And we recited these earlier, the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. The chief among these three is the devil, because his temptation caused the corruption of the other two sources. And when we identify the world as a source of temptation, we don't mean the dirt, grass, trees, sky, water, and animals around us but the collective sinful natures of all of us. And by flesh, we do not mean our own eyes, lips, hands, and feet, but our own sinful nature, that evil that lies so close inside our hearts. Our sinful flesh and the sinful flesh of everyone around us tempts us to sin, and behind it all is the devil. The great insight that I think Luther has regarding this petition is that it's not really about each individual sin we are tempted with. Every sin matters, and we should avoid all of them, but the devil is focused on the bigger picture. His target is not so much your behavior as it is your faith. We're tempted to think, and I use that word tempted intentionally because this comes from the devil. We're tempted to think that if we give in to, to just one sin, then the devil's got us. There's that temptation you've been fighting. You know what I'm talking about, where you fight and fight and fight. You think you're doing okay and you might make it, and then, bam, you fall. You feel like the devil's got you. Well, no, he doesn't. He just wants you to think he's got you. The devil doesn't want you to sin. He wants you to sin and then believe that your sins are not forgiven. 
His goal is not just to make you sin. His goal is to make you fall into unbelief. Uh, And there are at least two basic ways I could think of that he does this. One of them is to tempt us to sin so that we fall in love with those sins and then deny God falling into unbelief. Uh, Or he uses the route of despair where where he tempts us to sin and then we uh, fall into unbelief, thinking that God no longer forgives us. The devil's crosshairs are not really on your behavior. His crosshairs are on your faith. We see this way back in the Garden of Eden. Now that first sin, it destroyed the relationship between God and man, but it wasn't beyond repair. Adam and Eve merely thought that it was. And that's why they hid. But God went looking for them, and God restored what had been broken. Our sin is bad enough in itself, but the devil uses it to assault our faith. And that is really worse. And our sin is really only one of the devil's tools to assault our faith. The devil also uses sickness, poverty, fear, stress, anything that might take our eyes off of Jesus and his salvation. He puts our sin in front of our eyes to make us forget about Christ's forgiveness. He puts death in front of our eyes to make us forget about the resurrection of the dead. And perhaps, I think the devil's greatest temptation is that he uses good things, Good things like sports and academics and careers or relationships to just distract us. He will tempt us to think about and chase all kinds of good things so long as we're not reading and meditating on God's word. Whatever the temptation might be, the devil's target is our faith. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And just as Jesus has commanded us to pray for this, we also have certainty that our Heavenly Father will hear and answer. God does not command us to pray for something, only to turn around and refuse us. Remember, the Lord's Prayer does not merely tell us what to pray, but it also reveals God's will to us. God teaches us to pray for those things which he already desires to give. It is God's will to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We rejoice in this, and we have comfort in this. Now, this does not mean that he will prevent us from all sin, but it does mean he will guard us from unbelief and restore us when we fall. And so consider Peter on the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus told the disciples, you will all fall away. Peter was adamant that even if the other guys were weak, he would not fall away. So Jesus told Peter that his fall would really be worse. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And then, sure enough, all the disciples, including Peter, ran away when the soldiers came with Judas to arrest Jesus. But then Peter went farther than the others. 
Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. He was tempted by fear, and he fell. He did the very thing he vowed to never do. All it took was a few hours and a little fear. And so what would become of Peter? Would Jesus disown him? We skip ahead to the morning of Jesus' resurrection. An angel announces Jesus' resurrection to the women who went to the tomb. And he has a special message to pass along to the disciples and especially to Peter. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The angel says, his disciples and Peter, not to exclude Peter from the group of the twelve, but to include Peter. Though Peter and the other disciples fell away, Jesus would not allow them to fall away. And so he called them to himself and restored them. While they were all weak and fell into temptation, at that very moment Jesus was strong and resolute, going to the cross to atone for their sin and failure. Jesus restored them, including Peter, not because they had learned their lesson and wouldn't do it again, but because he had died for their sins. Lead us not into temptation does not mean that God will prevent us from all sins. I imagine there are many he prevents us from without us being aware of any of it but there are still many that we fall into. Rather, it means that he restores us. He preserves us in the faith. He leads us through this life of sin and fear and danger and death until he grants us a blessed end. And that simply means that we fall asleep in Jesus Christ, in whom we have perfect rest until we enjoy the glorious day of Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead. This is the will of God, because he's commanded you to pray this way. It is the will of God to protect you from the devil, the world, and even your own flesh. He does this by forgiving your sins through Jesus Christ. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.